Please have a seat. Note takers, there's your QR code, or you can go directly to fbcdan.com slash notes, and it will take you to the same place either way. You will have my notes. You can take your own notes on top of my notes, and then you can email them to yourself when you are done at the bottom of the page. So if you're a note taker, get after that. So I thought about, I thought about joking and having pretty little sins up there. Like we we're going to continue that for another week, but I didn't. But I thought about it. It would have been funny. But instead, we're moving right along. We're looking at fearless today, finding courage in God. We're looking at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And we will go all the way through to the beginning of chapter 8. We won't read all of that, but we will go through all of that. So have your fingers ready to turn some pages today. Looking at courage, and we're looking at really when it comes to this, the courage to be crowned. The courage to be crowned. By the end, end of today, I hope we have a firm understanding of what that means, to have the courage to be crowned. The courage to be crowned. Acts chapter 6. This, uh, excuse me, this quote by, from William Shakespeare was in one of the commentaries that I read this week, and I thought it fit perfect uh, with this chapters, these chapters we're looking at and with what we're talking about. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. That quote perfectly sets us up for where we're headed uh, in Acts chapter 6 today. Now, where we're, where we're in Acts, very quickly, uh, if you need a, need a refresher real quick. So Acts is, is right after Jesus has gone uh, back to heaven. He's been crucified. He's been, he's been buried. He's resurrected. And now the beginning of Acts is Jesus going back to heaven and then the church is born. So we're just picking it up in chapter 6. So Jesus hasn't gone back to heaven very long. There hasn't been a lot of time passed. But there have been thousands and thousands added to the church. One message added 3,000 people to the church. So the church is exploding in Jerusalem. But it is only in Jerusalem at this point. It is only in Jerusalem. It has not spread anywhere else in the world at this point. And then we're picking it up in chapter 6 today, verse 1, after that has just happened. Now, they've just come out of a trial, too. There's been two trials, two times that the apostles have been taken before the Sanhedrin, and nothing has happened quite yet. And that's where we're picking it up, after that second trial has just ended. It says, In those days, as the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews, those that spoke Greek versus those that spoke Hebrew that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters, or you may say to distribute the daily food, or to distribute the bread. The word means both. So the twelve, the apostles, say, hey, we shouldn't give up preaching and praying for these, this stuff, all of this stuff matters, we need more people to help handle this stuff. Verse 3, therefore, because of that, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty, this duty of handling the business of the church. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. So this idea pleased everybody. They were in favor of this idea. There's you a, a, a a check mark for the democracy of the church, in case you were wondering where that comes from. And so they say, hey, they choose Stephen, 
a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now, Stephen's our main character that we're looking at today. So pay attention to every single thing that talks about Stephen, including that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These were probably all Hellenistic Jews, all seven of these men, all Greek-speaking, Greek-cultural Jews. They had, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So that's the end of verse 6 there. So some would say this is when the first deacons come, come from. Technically, that, it doesn't say that in here. It doesn't say that these are the first deacons. But the idea is the same. You have the apostles and then these guys. Okay? And in the church, you have the overseers or the bishops or the pastors. We use the same word. Uh, the elders, we use the same word for that, and we have the deacons. It, it, the simil- it's a similar setup, no matter how you look at it. If you want to s- split hairs, you can, but that's not what we're here for today. So, verse 7. So the preaching about God flourished. Check that out. That's so cool. There's a problem in the church. The leaders of the church come up with an idea. They share it with the church. The church says, that's a good idea. They follow through with the idea. They vote in seven dudes. The seven dudes start doing what they were voted in to do. And the preaching about God flourished. The number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly. Isn't it cool that when we do things in unity and we do things in obedience with the Lord, when we do things in the hopes of expanding the gospel, it's a funny thing how the gospel expands. When we do that. Now that has nothing to do with what we're looking at today, really and truly. Not not specifically. But that's just a good nugget. That's a good nugget. The the, the early church giving us the example. It says, And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith also. So this thing is exploding. It's becoming a big deal. Then verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So obviously he wasn't elected just to wait on tables. Just to share bread. Just to count the money. All those things are implied in what they were, they were voted in for. But he's doing more than just that. This dude's getting after it. right? And, and so he's full of grace. And he's full of power. And he's performing great wonders and great signs among the people. And everyone, of course, was fired up. They were celebrating these wonderful things that God was doing through Stephen. The miraculous good works of Stephen. We're being cheered on, and everyone was praising God for the outpouring of the Spirit on the people. That's what's happening, right? Of course that's what's happening, right? Some of you know the story. Is that what happens? Of course they're just fired up about Stephen doing all this wonderful stuff. Of course that's what they're doing, right? Anybody ever read this? No. That's not what happens? I could have sworn that's what would have happened. I mean, Stephen, he's being obedient. Surely everything's just good. All right, maybe not. Verse 9. Of course. Then some from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia, which is where Paul's from, by the way, and Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. (laughs) Of course, of course, of course there's complainers and whiners and naysayers and debaters, and well, I'm not really sure we should do it that way. Right? I mean, the church is exploding, multiplying greatly. Not adding a few here and there, multiplying greatly. When you multiply, things get bigger fast, right? But of course, they weren't behind him going, Yay, Stephen! Yay, apostles! Great work! We're fired up. Nope, somebody's got to get their feelings hurt. Moving right along. Verse 10. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom 
and the spirit by whom he was speaking. They couldn't hold up. They brought a complaint to Stephen. Whoa, 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 Stephen, with all the miracle stuff. Chill out with that, bro. They couldn't, stand, they couldn't stand up. They couldn't hold up. Why? Because God was speaking for Stephen through Stephen. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit is present in us. God speaks for us through us. And it is a miracle when that happens. If you've never experienced that, I pray that you do. For those that have, you know what I'm talking about. When something happened and you just opened your mouth and things came out that you weren't really privy to that information until after it came out of your mouth. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? God, that was cool. Thank you for that. That was neat. Happens up here every once in a while. Not all the time. So now, right? So now surely they're on Stephen's side. The complainers have come and Stephen debates them. Now it doesn't say this, but it's fairly implied. How did he debate them? With knowledge of the scriptures. Stephen debated, debated them with knowledge of the scriptures. So surely now everybody's fired up about Stephen and, the, and the, what is probably the, the first deacons, even though it doesn't title them that, and the apostles and the work of the church and this exploding thing called following Jesus. It's amazing. I mean, he's preaching the truth of Jesus. He's doing wonderful signs of God and wonders of God. He's, he's proven he's right. And he's proven he knows what he's talking about in a public debate with wine bags. So now everyone is like, yay, Jesus. Yay, Stephen. Right? Huh. I mean, but Stephen's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Stephen's obeying God. He's standing up for God. He, he's got the power of Jesus pouring out of him as he lives obediently to Jesus. So surely... Now that he's doing that, everything in his life is awesome, right? Oh, maybe not. Verse 11. After he's beat them in the debate, then they, the wine bags, persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, or you could say the Sadducees and the Pharisees, same thing. So they came dragged him off and took him to the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court of Jerusalem. So these guys, these guys from this one synagogue, they convinced some idiots, sorry, into lying and saying that Stephen had committed a criminal offense punishable by death. Don't miss that. They're not just saying, well, Stephen's just talking crazy and we need to do something about it. The charges they're bringing against him are capital offenses that you could be killed for if the Sanhedrin finds you guilty of such things. Verse 13, they also presented false witnesses who said, this man does not stop bleak, speaking, excuse me, speaking blasphemous words against this holy place, being the temple and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, which would be like, well, I can't say what I want to say. It would be like saying somebody's from a place that you don't want to be from. We'll destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. For we have heard him say that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place, the temple, like the place, the temple, and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Now, let's put that into present day terms, okay? If we'd have won last night, this would have been the perfect illustration. Oh, man, it would have been even better. But we didn't, but it's still okay. This would be like living in Arkansas. 
and someone lying about you in court and saying, hey, this guy wants to demolish Donald W. Reynolds Razorback Stadium. And he wants the Arkansas Razorbacks to have to start playing in different random high schools around the state. And he wants to change our mascot from the Arkansas Razorbacks to the Arkansas Longhorns. And that's as good as an example as I can give you to, to how offensive it would have been to the ears of the Jews to hear somebody say they're going to tear down the temple and get rid of the customs of Moses. Now, we know, because we have scripture, that that's not what Jesus said at all, or his desire at all. Saying something is going to happen and causing it to happen are two different things, and he didn't even say it was going to happen. He said, I'm here to fulfill the law. Not one daughter tittle will go away. I will fulfill it all. So, they're lying, and it's a big lie. Verse 15, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Notice that they could physically, visually see the presence of God on Stephen. Stephen is doing it so right. He is so full of the Spirit. He is living so obediently and so full of Jesus. They could literally see it on his face, giving an obvious connection to Moses when Moses' face shone after being in the presence of the Lord. And look there, it says, the Sanhedrin looked intently at him. The middle of that verse, the Sanhedrin looked intently at him. They are sitting there as the judges that they are with the, the trial being brought before them. And they, and they look intently at Stephen. They stare deeply at him. Think of how intimidating a scene this would be if you were Stephen. Stephen is drug before these men with an offense that is punishable by death. These guys can charge him with heresy, blasphemy, sedition, and literally, legally have him killed. You would be terrified. I would be terrified in this situation. You would be asking God, why? Why, God? Why me? Why now? Things are so good. Things are so good, God. Why now? I mean, the church is growing. I mean, I'm doing what you said I'm supposed to do. Why am I standing here in front of these men going through this now? But what, but what did the Sanhedrin see as they stared at Stephen? What did they see? No anger. No fear. No bitterness. They saw peace. They saw someone secure in Jesus. They saw the quiet confidence of knowing Jesus and the way that that shows up in the most courageous ways when the Holy Spirit is present in someone. That's what they saw. They saw a man that looked back at them and didn't fear the power they held over him. They saw a face that shone like an angel is what they saw when they looked at Stephen. And then they say, is this true? 
the high priest asked. Probably Caiaphas, probably the same guy that Jesus stood before. Is this true? Are these, are these things so that they're saying that you did? Have you blasphemed God? Have you blasphemed Moses? Do you believe Jesus is going to destroy the temple? You know, the Jesus that we had killed on the cross? That guy? You, you think he is alive and is going to destroy the temple? You, you think he is going to change our traditions and customs? And you agree with all that? Do you? Is this true? What does Stephen do? This, this courageous, Holy Spirit-filled man. What does he do? Oh, guys, you don't understand. I would never say that about the temple. I would never say the temple would be destroyed. I'm a Jew. Right? There, there must be some misunderstanding. I would never blaspheme the Lord. See, Jesus is the Son of God. Is that what he does? Starts explaining and backtracking and crawfishing like probably almost every human being in this room and ever would do? No. What does he do? Verse 2 there, chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, he said, listen. He says, all right, everybody. Friends, brothers, fathers, all y'all, listen up. Now remember this. Remember that there are a few main false charges being brought to Stephen. He's blasphemed God. He's blasphemed Moses. He's devaluing the temple. And he's devaluing the land of Israel. Or the customs of Israel. And all that he's saying. Those are the charges against him. He doesn't go into a defense of all that. Here's what he does do. He says, hey, listen up. And he proceeds into the longest recorded message in all of the book of Acts. This is the longest spoken part of any of the things that take place in Acts. Stephen is a layman, as far as we can tell. A regular dude. But he's full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's power. And therefore, he's full of courage. He lays down a well-organized thrashing of these false claims against him. He says, hey, God first spoke to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. What's he saying? So God can do that wherever he wants. God can work wherever he chooses. He's not limited to the temple. And his word never claimed that he was limited to the temple. That's something you guys have made up. And he says, Abraham moved to the promised land. And God gave him no land, not even a foothold. Nothing. But he gave him a promise. Because God's a God of promises. He gave him a promise that his descendants would have this land. God gave him a promise. So he's not limited by the human boxes that we, can, we think God should fit in. That's what Stephen is trying to tell them real quick. Stephen says, that God told Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in Egypt for four centuries. And he gave him the sign and covenant of circumcision that God would indeed make Abraham's seed a great nation. Even though at the time he told him this, he had no son. And Stephen goes on. But then the eleven fathers... Of Israel got jealous and they sent their brother off to Egypt to be enslaved but God was with Joseph in Egypt this is all what Stephen's saying in his you can follow along in chapter 7 he was with him in Egypt again he's not limited 
to the promised land or to Jerusalem or to this building that you guys are so fond of. He's not limited to that. Stephen continues this trip down theological and historical and scriptural memory lane. He goes almost through the entire history of, of Israel. He says the nation flourished when they were in Egypt in slavery. And the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, he got scared of Israel. And what did he do when he was scared of Israel? Tried to kill off our race by having our sons killed by throwing them in the Nile River, which was a common pagan practice to control population growth. 3,500 years ago, this thing that we deal with nowadays is not a new problem of evil. It's always been there. It's always been something that we're fighting against. It says, and our Moses was born during this time when all the sons were supposed to be killed. He was preserved and unknowingly adopted by Pharaoh, educated as an Egyptian, and given the royal treatment. And at 40, he saw a brother Israelite being mistreated, and he killed the Egyptian that was mistreating his brother Jew. And then in verse 25, you can pick up with me in verse 25. He assumed, he being Moses, his brothers would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. See, Moses wanted to do it right then when he was 40 years old. He was ready, he thought. He thought the people were ready. But Moses was rejected. Moses was rejected just like Jesus was rejected. The clear implication that Stephen is making in this speech. Stephen continues, so Moses fled into exile 40 years, 40 years in exile. 40 years later, an angel of the Lord spoke to Moses through the burning bush. I am spoke to him and said, remove your sandals because you're on holy ground. And he wasn't in Jerusalem and he wasn't at the temple when he said it was holy ground. It was holy ground because God was there. Stephen is telling them. A point that no doubt Stephen's hearers would understand. And then verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, when they said, Who appointed you ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a redeemer by the means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. They rejected him. They rejected Moses. But God sent him back anyway. They rejected him, but God sent him anyway. The one the people rejected, God sent Stephen continues that, you know the story. I, that's what I would have said to them. You, you guys know this story as he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. He led them out of slavery. Did wonderful things. Setting up God signs all throughout Egypt with the plagues. He went down at the Red Sea. Crossed it. Out in the wilderness. 40 years. This is the Moses who said to his congregation, God will raise up a prophet just like me from your descendants. Stephen is telling the Sanhedrin, obviously speaking about Jesus. This is the Moses who stood between the angel, speaking at Sinai, and your fathers assembled in the wilderness and took the life-giving words given to him and handed them over to us, Stephen is telling them. Words our fathers would have nothing to do with, Stephen says. You know that Moses got these words and gave them to us, and our fathers have never Listen to what God said. Stephen is saying. I assume he's starting to get fired up by this point. I would have been getting fired up by this point. He may be a little cooler than me. He says, hey, you know what happened? They wanted the old ways back. They wanted to be back in Egypt. They complained and whined how it was better before when they were back in Egypt. Hey, make us, make us a God we can see, Aaron. 
Where's Moses? He's up on the mountain. We hadn't seen him in forever. Make us a God we can see. Come on. Israel whining in the wilderness. So Aaron makes him a golden calf. They brought sacrifices to it and then congratulated themselves on a job well done. We did so great. Look at this God we made. Here's the thing. It's not what God wanted, but he let them have it their way and let them have the consequences of their actions. Still Stephen speaking. They worshiped everything but God along the way. Stephen talking to the Sanhedrin about their mutual ancestors. And all along the way, all along the way, Stephen says, they had the proper spot for worship. They had the proper place to worship. They worshiped everything but God, but they had the place to worship. They, they had the tabernacle, the tent shrine for true worship. They had it with Moses, and they had it with Joshua when they cleared the land of Canaan. And even had it all the way to David. But then David wanted a permanent spot for God, a temple for God. But he didn't get to build it. Solomon, his son, did. We pick it up in verse 48. Verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says, quoting from Amos. Heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? And again, Stephen is making the point that you guys are worshiping the temple. You're worshiping the building, not God. God doesn't need a building. We do. So we're comfortable from the elements. And you, Stephen says, after laying all this out, he turns to them directly. He's probably been talking all along to everyone that's there. He turns directly to them. The most powerful men in all of Israel, the Sanhedrin, and he says, and you, verse 51, you stiff-necked people with your uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. Stephen finishes up here. Now think about this. Stephen has been obedient. He is acting with great courage at a time when most men would shrivel. Stephen is a, the word tells us that we've already looked through, he's a man of good reputation. He's full of spirit and wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He's a man that's performing great wonders and signs among the people. A man that has just laid out this bulletproof defense and explanation of Jesus and how God works and is continuing to work through him, Stephen, and through the apostles. Surely now, church, surely now the people are like, Yes, God, we, we, we see it your way now. Surely Stephen, now after doing all of this and living so obediently, surely he is blessed with blessings upon blessings upon blessings from living out this way for God. He should be promoted and given a raise 
and given all the things of his wildest dreams. If you listen to these clowns that preach nowadays, I mean, he's living for God. He's speaking out for Jesus. He's putting it all on the line. Here come the blessings and the love of the people, right? Is that what's coming? Is that what's coming, church? Surely that's what's coming. But that's what we think should be coming when we talk about things that happen the same way. I just don't understand, God. Things were so good, God. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. They were furious on the inside and the outside with Stephen. Furious, enraged. And Stephen? What about Stephen? How was Stephen at this point? But Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In this moment, Stephen is given a glimpse into heaven. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Usually sitting at the right hand of the Father. Right? In most descriptions. Why is he standing? To welcome Stephen? To testify on, behalf, on his behalf? Or, or is it like Daniel says in chapter 7? Because he's coming on the clouds, meeting the Ancient of Days. We don't know why he's standing. Maybe one or any of those things or something completely different. But Stephen sees God the Father and God the Son in heaven because he is filled with God the Holy Spirit. And he courageously says out loud that he is seeing this as the people are gnashing their teeth at him. So now, with this act of courage, Stephen gets the crowd to come to their senses. They apologize for acting crazy. And they all go on to live happily ever after. Right? If it was a Disney movie, it would be that way. Verse 57. Then they screamed at him. Screamed at the top of their voices. Covered their ears. And together they rushed against him. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, I don't know about you. But being stoned is not the way... I would choose to go if I got the choice, okay? And for some of you that it may be confused, it doesn't mean like stoned. It means like chunk rocks at you till you die. That's what stoning means. They're literally going to take you out most of the time and throw you into a big hole and throw rocks at you until you die. I'm not sure I could pick a worse way to go. Maybe equally as bad, but not worse. Now, I want to show you what true, God-given, spirit-filled, real-life, heavenly strength and courage looks like. Verse 59. They were stoning Stephen. They're throwing rocks at him and hitting him with rocks. As he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, echoing the same words that his Savior said on the cross. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, just like his Savior did on the cross. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. You think you're tough? I like to think I'm tough. Are we getting stoned unjustifiably 
and to ask for forgiveness for the people throwing rocks at you tough? Because that's tough. Now, what happens? On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So the twelve, the twelve apostles, stay in Jerusalem. But all the other followers of Jesus, including the newly elected ministers or deacons of the church, are scattered. The very next thing we see in Scripture, if you keep going, is Philip, one of the new leaders, one of the guys that just got elected, preaching the gospel in Samaria and people getting saved. The gospel begins to spread outside of Jerusalem. Now, where did Jesus tell his followers to take the gospel at the beginning of this book? What did he tell them? Many of us know this verse by heart, right? What does he say? If you go back to the beginning of Acts, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, check, in Judea and Samaria, now check, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, hey, you don't know how the Father's going to do it. You wouldn't believe me if I told you how he's going to do it. But he is going to do it. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. And so it begins. After Stephen being killed for his faith in Jesus, for Stephen's bold, courageous action for Jesus, the message spreads. The message begins to spread because of the persecution coming against the church. The message spreads. Now let's go back at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 and see a couple of verses that I skipped over that those of you that are following along, you probably caught. So why did he say that? That's kind of important. 758b. And the witnesses, the people chunking rocks, this is why Camp Solomon says don't chunk rocks. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul agreed with putting him to death, him being Stephen. Verse 3 of chapter 8. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Now, for those of you that haven't thought about this in a while, Saul is the same dude that we call Paul. Okay, He wasn't miraculously changed into Paul. It's two different names. Hebrew, Saul, Greek, Paul. Same person. He goes by, Greek, goes by his Greek name for the rest of Scripture because he's the evangelist to the Gentiles. So this is Paul, Saul, same dude. Saul is standing there witnessing this taking place to Stephen and agrees with what's taking place. Who is this guy? This is the guy that gets saved and becomes the Apostle Paul. This is the guy that God uses to write half the New Testament this is the guy who literally begins the process of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He is responsible for why it went from a little area thing to a worldwide thing. And this guy was standing there watching and approving of Stephen being stoned. He's there. He's responsible in part for what's happening to Stephen. The first martyr. The first person that is killed for their faith in Jesus. 
He's responsible for the extreme persecution on the church. So in some way, he's responsible for the gospel even going to Judea and Samaria by his disobedience. Why does this matter for what we're talking about today? This part about Paul and him being there at the time. What kind of effect do you think that had on Paul? Well, we can kind of look and see later on in Acts 22. But I said, Lord, this is Paul now talking. Lord, they don't know that in the synagogue after synagogue, that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by and approving. And I guarded the clothes of those who killed him. Here it is, years and years and years and years and years later in chapter 22 of Acts. Paul's giving a defense of himself after he's now been arrested for preaching Jesus. This is right before he appeals to his Roman citizenship and gets the chance to go stand before the emperor in Rome. That's where we're at in 22. And he is still, years later, still affected by what happened to Stephen. He's still motivated by the wrong he had done on that day and the days that followed. He's still affected by the spirit-filled courage that Stephen spoke with that day. One man's true act of courage in the face of evil, in the face of ridicule, in the face of death, one man's actions changed everything. Everything for the rest of history. One dude had spirit-filled courage and did what was right, even though it cost him his physical life. And everything changed. And it certainly had a part in changing Paul. You see, we say, here's what we say. We read that story, and if I wasn't preaching about what I'm preaching about, you read that story, you go, man, what a shame. What a shame, old Stephen. What a shame. He was such a good man. He was living for God. He was bold. He was courageous. What, what a shame. He was killed so young. I mean, what God could have done if that hadn't happened? What God could have done with Stephen if he had just, just let him keep living? And I think God would say this to us. Now, I don't know. I'm not speaking for him. This is my opinion. I think God would say, are you dense? Like, are you hard-headed? Are, are, is it difficult for you to understand what just happened? Can you not see what I did with Stephen? I literally changed the world with his courage. You know about me because of Stephen, God would say. Do you think he got the short end of the stick? I used him to change everything, and he's enjoying that fact in eternity. Eternity's everlasting for those of us that have forgotten. He's enjoying everlasting rewards for his faithfulness. Don't believe me? Here's where we'll finish. Check this out, Revelations chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, talking to the church, the letter to the church at Smyrna. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have affliction for 10 days. Next verse. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
John tells the church at Smyrna. Suffer, be faithful in that suffering, even if it costs you your life, and I will give you the crown of life. The next verse says that the victor will never be harmed by the second death. Those that are faithful unto death won't experience second death. How does this relate to Stephen? This was cool. I'm not going to lie, this was cool. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. Okay? A Greek-speaking Jew. Guess what the name Stephen or Stephanos means in Greek? Crowned. Or victor's wreath. The guy who, the guy who literally was the first person to be faithful unto death for Jesus. Who, who was a victor that would not taste the second death. Who, who received the crown of life. His, his name literally means crowned with a victor's wreath. Now you just can't make that kind of stuff up. So I'll finish with this. Do you have the courage to be crowned? Do you, as a follower of Jesus, have the courage to be crowned? To have faith no matter what? To have faith even unto the point of death? Do you have the courage to do what is right? Do you have the courage to speak up when you're supposed to? Do you have the courage to be in the word like Stephen was? Stephen wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't some, some fancy highfalutin seminary degree holding big shot. He was just a dude. Just a regular guy that loved Jesus and submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit and preached one of the most powerful messages ever. Do you have the courage to be in his word? Do you have the courage to live for Jesus? It's easy, students, to live like the world. It's weak to give in to sin. It's easy to live a sin-filled life. That's not tough. That's not special. That's what everybody does. You've got to have courage to live for Jesus. You've got to have courage to say, no, I'm not participating in said activity. Well, they're going to make fun of me. Well, boo-hoo. You've got to have courage to live for Jesus. It's easy to live in sin. You know that, and I know that because we've all done that. We've all lived in sin. Some of us are in it right now, neck deep. And it's easy to be there. It's hard to live for Jesus, but it is worth it. It is worth it. But you've got to have a Holy Spirit-filled backbone to do it. And you can't have that unless we're together and in His Word and communicating in prayer. It just doesn't just show up for no reason. We have to be faithful, faithful even to the point of death. So I'll leave you with that one question. Do you have the courage to be crowned? Some of you have never started this process. You've never been given salvation because you've never turned your life over at all to Jesus. You've never said, yes, I am a sinner. And yes, Jesus died for my sins, was buried, and came back to life proving his power over sin and over death. And I'm placing my faith in that. That's called being saved. God gives you forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life when you believe that. And you have faith in that, trust, hope in that. Some of us are there today and you need to take the first step. But some of us, 
Some of us have been a follower of Jesus for a long time, but if we were standing in front of the Sanhedrin, we'd crumble like a deck of cards because we don't have the Holy Spirit in us right now. Yes, you have him for salvation, but you hadn't spent any time with him in a long time. We need to get serious. Maybe somebody 2,000 years from now is going to look back and say, hey, that one regular dude stood up when it mattered. And because of that, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And now I know Jesus, just like Stephen. No telling what God can do with one person who lives courageously for him. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the courage you give us through your spirit. Thank you for the blessings of eternal life. Thank you for the beautiful blessing of the forgiveness of sin, God. Thank you so much. Lord, we are so weak. We are weak. I am weak, Lord. We, we fall prey to the temptation of sin so easily, God. Thank you that you don't give up on us and you continue to show mercy and grace to us, God. But will you please wake us up so that we live like your message actually matters. And not only be living to be satisfied and pleasured by what we can get in this world. God, give us the courage of Stephen. Give us the courage of Jesus, please. In his name, amen.